What's up, everybody? Welcome to Citizen Hope. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Um, before we dive in, I I want to do some shout outs because since joining the podcast community, I have been so warmly embraced by a few fellow podcasters that I just need to take a moment and say thank you. Um, the first pod to reach out and welcome me with open arms was the Florida Men on Florida Man podcast. Um, if you're not familiar with that show, they are hilarious guys who tell Florida Man stories with color commentary that will leave you laughing till you pee your pants a little bit. Um, and they have since introduced me to multiple other shows and folks within the podcast community. Um, and even just recently, Podmunity featured this show, Citizen Hope, in issue 21 of their newsletter in the Pods We Love section. Um, you can follow Podmunity on Instagram and Twitter at Podmunity. And please go check out Florida Men on Florida Man podcast you will not be sorry. Um, and I just want to say to everybody who has reached out via Instagram or Twitter, thank you all so much for the kindness towards me um, and the exposure for this little baby podcast. So if you listened to the last episode, you heard me mention that this week I'll be talking about Nasir Ahmed, whose name you might recognize from the TV show, This Is Us. The show paid tribute to Ahmed's work and the love story between he and his wife, Esther, in season five, episode eight. In the epilogue, the writers said, you don't know his name, but Nasir and his team are responsible for keeping us connected today. I highly recommend you check out that episode, but also just watch the show if you don't already. It's an incredibly hopeful and uplifting story with incredible writing, incredible acting. It's just one of my all-time faves. Um, and I totally agree with the show's decision to honor Nasir Ahmed and, and he and his team's work. So I'd like to tell you about him and what he created that keeps us connected. Before we get to Nasir Ahmed, I'm actually going to start by taking you back in time and telling a different tale. I stumbled across this story recently and was surprised by the serendipitous timing. Both of these stories include feats of human ingenuity, both have New Mexico in common, and the two stories together demonstrate that we are incredible creators, capable of bringing seemingly impossible ideas into existence. My first story is about Loretto Chapel in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The chapel was commissioned by the Sisters of Loretto for their girls' school, Loretto Academy, in 1873. Archbishop Jean-Baptiste Lamy brought in two French architects, Antoine Mouly and his son, Projectus, to work on the St. Francis Cathedral project, and he suggested to the sisters that they could also make use of their services to build a chapel for their academy. Projectus ended up being the main architect for the project and based his Gothic revival design on the famous Sainte Chapelle in Paris. The chapel included spires, buttresses, and stained glass windows imported from France. And the building itself was built from locally quarried sandstone and took five years to complete. The chapel was officially consecrated in 1878. Loretto Chapel was used on a daily basis by the students and nuns of Loretto Academy until the school closed in 1968. But it's not the students or the nuns or the academy that is legendary. It's the chapel's staircase. In 1879, the main architect, Projectus Muli, died unexpectedly. 
And by this point, the chapel was substantially complete, except it lacked access to the choir loft. According to the version of events passed down by the Sisters of Loretto, multiple builders were consulted about building stairs to the loft, but none were able to find a workable solution that didn't greatly reduce the seating area. In response, the nuns began a novena. This is a nine-day prayer to St. Joseph, the patron saint of carpenters. On the last day of the novena, a mysterious stranger appeared with only a hammer and a carpenter's square and offered to build the staircase. He insisted on working alone, allowing no one in the chapel while he was there, and he brought with him only a few simple hand tools. The end result of his work was a spiral staircase rising 20 feet to the choir loft while making two full turns, all without the support of a newel or central pole. The entire structure was held together by wooden pegs and glue rather than nails or any other hardware. The staircase itself is constructed with a type of wood that has never been exactly identified, even though a core sample has been analyzed. All we know from that analysis is that the wood is from the spruce family, but it isn't one of the 10 spruce species that exist in North America. When the staircase was completed, the carpenter disappeared, never having collected his payment. The Sisters of Loretto searched everywhere for the carpenter, even asking the local lumber yard if they sold any wood to the mystery man, but the yard claimed that no wood had been sold. The Sisters of Loretto viewed the staircase construction as a miracle and believed that the mysterious builder must have been St. Joseph himself. Even by today's standards, the staircase is a remarkable feat of woodworking. According to a Washington Post column by Tim Carter, it's a magnificent work of art that humbles me as a master carpenter. To create a staircase like this using modern tools would be a feat. It's mind-boggling to think about constructing such a marvel with crude hand tools, no electricity, and minimal resources. According to another professional carpenter who was interviewed by Ben Radford for his book, Mysterious New Mexico, the execution is just incredible. The theory of how to do it, to bend it around in a two-turn spiral, that's some difficult arithmetic there. In the early 2000s, an amateur historian named Mary Jean Cook identified the probable builder of the staircase as Francois-Jean Rochas, a reclusive rancher and occasional carpenter who came to New Mexico from France around the 1870s. And while I hate to discredit the Sisters of Loretto, I love the idea of real, actual humans being capable of such magic. There's evidence all around us from all points in human history that our incredible brains can create real-life miracles. And while a lot of religions attribute the good and bad things that humans do to forces outside of ourselves, for instance, to either God or Satan, and recent conspiracy theories attribute incredible creations like the Great Pyramid and Stonehenge to ancient aliens, it's my opinion that those stances are kind of dangerous. Certainly, those views are fun to indulge in, don't get me wrong. But the abstracted meaning there is that we humans are not really responsible for anything, neither the good nor the bad that we do, and nothing original or truly heroic comes from our own free will. We're not the creator, we're just a tool. I don't like the powerlessness that comes from that line of thinking. 
So let's move on to a more modern example of human invention and its impact on a much larger scale. And I personally am giving all the credit to Nasir Ahmed and his team. I can't find any influence from saints or aliens in this story, but you're free to draw your own conclusions. Nasir Ahmed was born in 1940 in Bangalore, India. He attended the Bishop Cotton Boys School and went on to receive his bachelor's degree from the University Vishwishwaraya College of Engineering in 1961. After getting his degree, Ahmed moved to the United States to continue his education. He attended the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque and studied electrical and computer engineering. He received his master's degree in 1963 and his PhD in 1966. It was in 1963 that he met the love of his life, Esther Periente, at an international student's gathering. Esther was intrigued by Nasir's studious, serious nature, and she, a small but outspoken woman from Argentina, soon captured his heart. By 1965, they were married, and just a few years later, they welcomed a son named Michael. After his graduation in 1966, Ahmed worked as the principal research engineer for Honeywell in St. Paul, Minnesota until 1968. He and his family then moved to Kansas, where he became a professor at Kansas State University until 1983. It was at Kansas State that Ahmed and his team developed Discrete Cosine Transform, or DCT. Ahmed states, This was in early 1972, and I wrote a proposal to the National Science Foundation. Much to my disappointment, the National Science Foundation did not fund the proposal. I recall one reviewer's comment to the effect that the whole idea seemed too simple. Hence, I decided to work on this problem with my PhD student, Mr. T. Natarajan, and my friend, Dr. Ram Mohan Rao, at the University of Texas at Arlington. I love that Ahmed didn't stop the pursuit of his proposal after the National Science Foundation said his DCT solution seemed too simple. It's a great lesson in how to handle rejection, which is that rejection should be expected when you're a creator, and it shouldn't ever represent a stop sign. Not everyone will understand or even take the time to understand what you've created or how it works, and that's okay. What matters is that you keep pushing forward, and that's exactly what Nasir and his team did. So what the heck is discrete cosine transform anyway? Brace yourselves, we're about to get a little bit technical. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Well, it's also worth a lot of pixels. And put simply, a pixel is a small area of illumination on a display screen. When we see a clear and detailed photo on our smartphones or TV screens, something like a high resolution image, that means there are many pixels per inch on the screen that contain data. And when we see a low-resolution image, an image that's less detailed and more fuzzy, that means there are less pixels per inch on that screen containing data. Now, if you think about what a video is, it's just a capture of many photos per second, and these are called frames per second, with audio. Consider that a video must contain millions of frames, and each frame contains millions of pixels, and that means a video contains huge amounts of data. 
So how in the world are we able to send that data to one another via Zoom or FaceTime or video files? And the answer is data compression. Compression is the process of reducing the amount of space needed to represent data. And that data could be text or images or video, audio, anything really. Discrete cosine transform is a form of what's called lossy compression, meaning that non-critical pieces of the original data are thrown out while the important structure of the data is retained. What constitutes non-critical pieces of data is up to the compression algorithm that's used. So let's start by thinking about audio data. We know that sounds can be represented in waves on a graph because they have frequency and amplitude. But image data can also be modeled with waves. Imagine a black and white digital photo of someone's face. Zoom in closer and closer and even closer on that digital image, and eventually you'll get so close that all you see are pixels, little squares in rows and columns that contain varying degrees of grayscale, from black to white and all shades of gray in between. We can model these pixels in a square matrix of their grayscale values, and when we graph that matrix, we find waves. When we look at the image graphed in wave patterns with peaks and valleys, we can start to see how we might compress our image data by using different sine and cosine waves. I am having flashbacks to high school calculus. Is it just me? <laughs> so when we're looking at that graphical representation of the image, we can see that some areas are really important to preserve. For instance, we want to make sure that we keep the wave peaks intact because we want our image of a face to still have a nose. But some of the smaller waves leading up to those peaks are less important and could be removed without us losing the overall structure of a nose. Once you remove the higher frequency components, a new compressed image can be generated. And that's exactly what discrete cosine transform does. It's a method of separating images into parts of differing importance with respect to the image's visual quality. More specifically, it's a linear transformation that decomposes an image into the sum of different combinations of sine and cosine waves. Once the image or series of images and audio, in the case of a video, is compressed, it can be sent from the source of origin to whatever the receiver is. And if the compression is done well, when the receiver views the image or video, there appears to be either no or very little loss of quality. So now you can probably see where I'm going with this. Without discrete cosine transform, we would probably not have digital media. Imagine a world with no smartphones, no smart TVs, no Netflix, no memes, no FaceTime, no Zoom. And imagine that world in a pandemic. What would working from home look like? Would it even exist? Would the majority of the population just be unemployed until it was safe to gather in groups again? And how would you communicate with loved ones that you aren't able to see in person? I mean, you quite literally would not be able to see their faces via any means except mailing old school videotapes back and forth. We can thank Mr. Ahmed and his team for making this pandemic so much more bearable than it otherwise would have been and for giving us the closest thing to in-person contact with our loved ones.
So what did Nasir Ahmed do after the development of DCT? He went back to his alma mater, the University of New Mexico, and became a professor emeritus of electrical and computer engineering. Esther, his beloved wife, received a PhD in Spanish and Latin American literature from the University of New Mexico in 1994, and Nasir stayed at UNM until he retired in 2001. Ahmed has authored two books, Orthogonal Transforms for Digital Signal Processing and Discrete Time Signals and Systems, and in 2018, he and Esther released a limited edition book about their life called Parallel Lives in Curved Space. Nasir and Esther Ahmed are still happily married and live in La Jolla, California. They recently celebrated their 56th wedding anniversary. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I hope the stories that I share put a big, bright spotlight on the potential that lives in all of us. Check out the show notes for the sources that I use to make each episode. And if you like the podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, I'd be so honored to tell your stories on the show. I'm talking about stories of everyday heroism, courage, and hope. Like, did your great-grandparents write each other for months during the war and it kept their love alive? Did your mom or dad save you from calamity when you were a kid? Did a small act of kindness, like stopping for a stranded motorist, lead to something much greater? Did your pet save your life? These are the stories I would love to share. Email me at citizenhopepodcast at gmail.com for a chance to have your story featured on the show. Now I want you to go forth and kick ass because you are amazing. Mm -hmm.